It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. How wonderful to be able to have employment where you can work with not only one, but two areas you deeply love. Betsy Bauman has been so fortunate to be able to do just that. She considers herself an art quilter and her work has been seen in many venues across the United States. I'm so glad Betsy Bauman could join me today on A Quilter's Life. Welcome, Betsy. Thank you, Paula. I'm pleased to be here. Betsy, where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in upstate New York. So that would be areas like Ilian, Herkimer, Little Falls, New York. The big city around there would be Utica, New York. That's where I grew up, and that is where I fell in love with my first love, which wasn't quilting. It was theater. Oh, neat. I fell in love with theater in the Mohawk Valley when I was in first grade, and I was cast as Mrs. Santa Claus for the Christmas play. I'd seen people sewing, and at one point in the little play, I had to sew hats for the dolls that were coming up that were being played by my classmates. And I'd seen people sew, and so I wanted it to look very realistic. I guess I was kind of an early method actor. And so I brought to school a needle and thread, and I pretended I was sewing the doll hats. But then when my first friend, Sue Ellen Nisipany, came up as the first doll, I forgot to bring a pair of scissors. And so when I tried the hat on Sue, she had a needle and thread hanging from it. <laughs> <laughs> so in first grade, I was fell in love with, I guess, both sewing and theater at the same time. How fun. Is that your special childhood memory, or do you have other memories of growing up? I do have another memory, and that is that my grandmother, she did not make quilts, but she did do a lot of sewing. And she did a lot of clothing, and she also did crochet. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was a little girl, she was going to make me a little pinafore with a heart-shaped bib. And she asked me if I wanted to help her. And of course, I said yes. And I used to think she was absolutely amazing that she could make pajamas and things like that. And when she asked me to help with this pinafore, she asked me to help her pin down the pattern and then she was going to cut around it. And I was like, what? Is that all you have to do? You just have to pin it down and trace around it? Well, I can do that. And from that very moment, I just knew that I could do it. And so I would just make up things to do and taught myself. How neat. Tell me about where you live now and how you got there. So I lived in New York State. And I went to college in New York State as well, and I studied theater there. And I also worked in many theaters around the Rochester, New York area. Then I saw that there was an opening for the Great Lakes Shakespeare Festival here in Ohio, and I applied and got the job. And so I moved here to Ohio to work at the Shakespeare Festival. It's now the Great Lakes Theater Festival. But when I came here in the 1980s, it was the Great Lakes Shakespeare Festival. And that was just a summer job. 
And I moved here to Lakewood because that's where the costumes were done here in Lakewood. Then I didn't know what I was going to do in the fall. I thought maybe I'd be moving back to New York. But the people at the Great Lakes Shakespeare Festival said, well, why don't you try working at the Cleveland Playhouse for the year? And so for several years, I did do that. I worked at the Cleveland Playhouse during the fall and uh, the winter and the spring. And then the summer, I'd go back to the Great Lakes and then back to the Cleveland Playhouse. So then it ended up that I was here and I've never left. Wow. Share with me about your employment and why you chose that career. Well, I fell in love with theater at a very young age, as I've said, and it's the only thing I ever wanted to do. And I did worry that maybe I wouldn't be able to make a living doing theater, but I earned a BA from Brockport State University in theater. And then when I was here in Ohio, I went to the University of Akron for theater to earn my master's. So I got an MA degree also in theater. And then when I was teaching, I was teaching at the University of Akron after I got my degree, then somebody, Susie Campbell from Kent State University, came to work with us at the University of Akron, and she said, you need your MFA. And I said, no, I don't. And she said, well, you won't be able to teach unless you have your MFA in theater. And I said, well, I lucked out and I am teaching here. And she said, yes, but you probably won't get a chance to teach anywhere else without your MFA. And if you come to Kent State University, you can earn your MFA. And so that's what I did. So I have a BA, an MA, and an MFA, (laughs) all in theater. I love all aspects of theater, both performance as well as design. But at Kent, we really had to focus because it was a master's program. I had to focus on one or the other. So I did focus on theater design. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I got my job at Hiram College, and I've been there since 1993, and I'm very happy with Hiram. It's a lovely small school with a lot of history and heritage. I get a lot of freedom to express myself and choose classes that I want to teach. I get to teach in the theater program, of course. I teach costume and makeup. I also get to teach performance, so I get to teach acting and oral interpretation of literature. And right now, I'm teaching a writing class for our first-year students at Hiram College. And I even got to choose my own topic, and I chose the topic of how do the arts connect us. And so we talk about theater. We talk a lot about quilting. And I am having my students all make a small improvisational kawandi quilt, a style that's from India. We're going to learn about how the arts are good for us and how they help to connect communities, and also connect ourselves to ourselves. Wow. They're so fortunate to have you there. Thank you. I feel I'm fortunate to be there. Hiram gives me a great deal, and I love teaching young people. Mm-hmm. Besides quilting, are there other crafts or hobbies that you do? Right now, I am pretty much really into the quilting thing. But for many years, I was a doll maker, and I used to love to make all kinds of dolls, and I would sell them at craft shows and things. And I love making dolls. I think it's a nice hobby that connects my theater and my sewing together because I get to make little characters, and I get to make their costumes. So it's like theater. I make these little actors and dress them. So I really enjoy doing that. Other hobbies are I'm a singer. I sing at my church, 
with a small combo of a contemporary group. I loved singing. I have not been able to do it for a year, not because I'm sick or anything, Mm -hmm. but because of this COVID thing. Singing is bad. You're not allowed to sing together because it's just too much breathing out. Yeah. So I haven't been able to do my singing, but I'm always reading something. I love to read. I have a huge collection of books, and I just love to read when I have the chance. I also saw in your fun facts that you know all the musicals, and you break out in singing. I do. I know every musical. I really love musical theater. And no matter what class I teach, if something strikes me, I will sing a line from it. And I'll say, hey, do you know what that's from? Yeah. (laughs) I will break out in song. You know, some people don't like musicals because they think it's unrealistic that people would just write off the bat, break into a song. But in my world, we do. Yeah. How fun. And talking about the costumes you make, I see you enjoy attending Renaissance festivals. Do you still do that? Yes, I do. I love to go to Renaissance festivals with my two grown children and their partners. We've been going ever since the children were young. Of course, I taught both my children how to sew. And from the age of about 10 or 12, each of my kids made their own Renaissance costumes. Pretty elaborate, so I would help them, of course, but I would help them make the panes and the panels and the boning and the bodices and all of that kind of thing. So both my son and my daughter can sew. And yeah, I love to dress up and I like to go to the Renaissance festivals. I have three different Renaissance outfits that I can choose from depending upon my mood. Mm -hmm. I can be a Scottish lady. I have this wonderful red plaid Scottish outfit. And I also could be a pirate lady if I'm in that mood. So I have a very elaborate pirate costume. And then if it's a really hot day, I have sort of a lighter weight blue plaid Renaissance lady costume. Now you're up near Cleveland. Do they have the festivals up there? I know there used to be one over by Cincinnati. Yes, they do still have one. And I did go to that one with my children. Our favorite actually is the Pittsburgh Renaissance Festival. They've got a really nice woodsy area, and it's quite large, and they have all kinds of things, music. I love music. And the thing about the Pittsburgh Renfest is that they have a carillon. Do you know what a carillon is? No. It's a huge instrument about the size of a truck, and it takes a truck to move it there. And it's a system of metallic bells that are rung And it's so loud that you can feel the vibrations in your body. And it's right in the middle of the woods. And this guy really gets into it. He has a costume all in black with a Renaissance mask, kind of Commedia dell'arte if you're a theater buff. And he's very mysterious. And every year I buy a new CD of his carillon music. Oh, neat. I never heard of that before. And I also see that you love puppets. I do love puppets. Yes, I do. I just taught a puppetry class. Hiram is a special school, and I think maybe you've already gleaned that I think it's special. (laughs) One thing that we do that is very special and very smart, I think, is we have our students go for a 12-week term and then a three-week term, and then a 12-week term, and then a three-week term. 
And in the 12 week, they take three or four classes. And in the three week, they take just one. And so they have just one class they can concentrate on for three weeks. And so that's a really good time to do a class like puppetry or costume and makeup, where you're maybe making a mess and you don't want to clean it up for the next class. You can leave your art supplies out and really concentrate on that project. And so I just taught puppetry in this last three week during the winter. And during this term, we were told that our school was going to be fully online for that three-week term. Oh, no. And I wondered if I could possibly teach puppetry online. Because, you know, we have a little puppet stage and I have them do performance things. But actually, it worked out very well. I could have them do little puppet exercises in breakout rooms in Zoom. And I could have them submit videos of their puppet performances to me that we could show to the class. The only thing was that I wasn't in their rooms guiding them in the making of the puppets. They were on their own for that, but they did a good job, and I think they got a great deal out of it, and we could still certainly cover puppet history around the world. Mm -hmm. Every country in the world has some sort of puppet history that's different and reflects their culture, and I think that is fascinating. It's only been recently the 20th century, that puppets have really been considered children's entertainment. The whole rest of all these millennia, (laughs) puppets have been for adults. Huh. That's interesting that all around the world that there's puppets. I think of medieval times in England or something, but I didn't realize other parts of the world. Oh, no. Even B.C. times, people were making puppets. In some countries, acting wasn't allowed because acting meant that you were impersonating another person or possibly even a god, and they didn't agree with that. But puppets were allowed, especially if they were shadow puppets. Sometimes only shadow puppets were allowed because then you were watching the shadow of the puppet, and that was something that did not steal your soul away. Huh. Who introduced you to quilting? I guess I might have to say Alex Anderson did. (laughs) I mean, I knew about quilting, but I remember one time when I was at home, it was actually during the three-week term, and I wasn't teaching during that three-week term. And so I was free then and had a lot of time and not a lot of money. And I watched this show, and I still don't know the name of the quilter who impressed me so much, but it was Alex Anderson's Simply Quilts. And... There was an African-American woman who had done a beautiful quilt of all these famous women, portraits of women and quotations from the women. I was like, wow, I didn't know that quilts could be like that. I thought they were all sort of geometric and flowery and very traditional. I didn't know that you could actually tell a story and make a very realistic picture with quilts. And I was like, I could do that. Just like when I was a child with my grandma, I've never done that before, but I can do that. (laughs) And so I decided that I was going to make a quilt like that, too. And so I was going to make my story quilt. And it was going to be for my bed. It was going to be large. But it turned out that each of the blocks telling my story got very, very intricate. They had a lot of applique pieces, very small pieces. My children were young then, and I have pets. And I thought, well, if my children are jumping on the bed or the cats are throwing up on my bed or 
scratching or something like that. This quilt is not going to last. It, it shouldn't be on the bed. I can see that now. It needs to be on the wall. But I had no wall big enough. So I made it into two halves. Oh, okay. So in that story quilt, there's a picture of me, my children, my children's handprints, my handprints, pictures that my children drew. I transferred into fabric and appliqued them on. There's things in there about my theater activities and things in there about Hiram College and teaching. And there's a poem that my son wrote about me in there. So that was my first quilt, and it was inspired because I saw that quilt on Simply Quilt. And even from the very beginning, I was one to strike out on my own and make up my own thing instead of try making a log cabin quilt or something. And I'll tell you, I have never made a log cabin quilt to this day. I can appreciate other people's quilts, whether I would want to make them or not. Paula, I can as well. I love the traditional quilts. And I love the traditional quilts so much that I collect them. Hmm. I have an antique quilt collection. None of them are museum quality. One year at church, one of my choir members, his daughter was getting married, and he came up to me and he asked if I would sing the Ave Maria for her wedding. And I was very flattered, and I said, oh, I absolutely would. And so I did, and sang the rest of the mass settings and things like that. And at the end of the service, he came up and handed me an envelope with a check for $100 in it. And I was shocked. I never expected that. So I thought, wow, here I am. I'm a single mother. I raised my children alone. And of course, I needed that money. But this was money that I did not expect to have. And it was in the spring. And so I thought, here, I've got a bonus of $100. I'm going to the Burton Antiques Festival. And I'm going to buy something for me. And I found some quilts. And I knew that that's what I was going to spend my $100 on. There was a quilt there that was very old. And most of the old quilts like that from the 1800s are much more expensive than $100. But this one was done in beige and brown. And so it wasn't very what most people would call eye-catching or pretty. I thought it was pretty, but it had really outstanding quilting on it. Beautiful florals and wreaths and all sorts of lovely things in it. And she wanted $100 for it. And so I purchased it. To this day, I call it the Ave Maria quilt because it was the first one that I was able to buy. And from that time on, every year I allow myself to buy one quilt and it must not be over $100. Now, one year, though, my daughter went with me and she's a good one to go shopping with or perhaps not a good one to go shopping with. Because I found this little sunbonnet Sioux quilt, which was done in the 1930s, and it was only $75. And I thought, hey, Audrey, I could get this. And then I saw that there was an overall Sam quilt that was there, too. I knew that they were made by the same woman because some of the same fabrics were in each one. It looked to me like she had a son and a daughter, and she made these two quilts for her children. I was like, well... I'll get the Sunbonnet Sue one. And my Audrey was saying, um, you can't leave this boy quills. They go together. And I'm like, yeah, but that would be $150. Mm -hmm. 
I can't do that. And she goes, there's an ATM right over there. (laughs) And so I bought both the boy and the girl quilt. And that was the only time that I broke my rule of going over $100. But I have a lovely collection now. I would like to say this, Paula, too, to your listeners. And that is that I love to do lectures for guilds. And I have several of them. And one of them is on dating antique quilts and what we can learn from them. And I always bring my collection of antique quilts and show and tell them and ask the participants to bring any quilts that they have for me to kind of tell them something about them. So I do that. But I also have other ones. My most popular one is about how quilts tell stories. And I impersonate different characters from different plays and things like that about quilts and quilting. And I have several other ones, too, about why quilters are smart or how quilts are art, and I compare them to great works of art, paintings, and things like that. So I have a number of talks that I really enjoy doing. I am a theater person. I'm a performance person. And so doing these lectures allow me to do both performance and bring in my love for quilting. And I've found that they work very well on Zoom, since quilt guilds are not meeting very much these days. I've been doing a lot of my talks on Zoom. And they've worked very well, and the guilds seem to enjoy them. So that was a little going off topic a little bit because I was talking to you about my antique quilts. But I do love the idea of how the antique quilts make me feel a connection to the quilters of the past. Yeah. That I'm still doing my quilting and I'm doing my thing, but they still have stories to tell, and they're beautiful. I do some traditional quilts as well. Now, your listeners may think that this is a very bad thing, but I'm going to make a confession here. Sometimes antique quilts come to me. People know that I love them, and sometimes they actually give them to me. I was given an antique quilt top that somebody had not finished. This person was probably from Watkins Glen, New York. That's where this quilt top was found. And it was done in the pattern called cake stand. They look sort of like baskets. And they were quite pretty. And I thought this quilt top was done in 1880. But I happened to bring it to some classes that I was doing. And there was a lady there teaching about antique quilts. And she said, that quilt top is from 1860. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. Okay, so what did I do with it? Did I finish it? As some people would say, to finish it in the way she would have done it, by hand, because it was hand-pieced. But I did not do that. It was my quilt now. Yeah. And so I chose not all of the blocks. I picked the best of the blocks and put them into a very large medallion in the center of my quilt. And then for the four large triangles surrounding the huge block on point, I put in their stories And on the left side, I did applique pictures of Lakewood, Ohio. And then at the bottom left, I put a picture of me. Not with any of those photo transfer things, but an applique picture. And then on the right side, I did an applique picture of the Glen in Watkins Glen, New York. And at the bottom right, I put a picture of what I imagined that woman looks like when she made her quilt by hand. And my side shows a sewing machine. Her side is done by hand. And I called the quilt Betsy and Me, 
because I know who I am, but I don't know her name. Yeah. I figured she and I made this quilt together. And I think it's the ultimate expression of the connection I feel between the antiques and the contemporary. And I really just finished that quilt this year. So it's never gotten a chance to be seen by anyone at a quilt show or anything. But I'm really looking forward to that because I'd like to see what other quilters think. Some people would be horrified that I took an antique quilt top that was hand-pieced and machine quilted it and added my own stuff to it. And others maybe will think it's kind of cool. It's neat how quilts come to you sometimes. So it was yours to do what you wanted. Thank you, Paul. I'm glad that you agree. Uh-huh. Tell me about your favorite quilt, quilt pattern or a quilt that you made or just a favorite quilt you've had. Paul, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that. You know, my favorite quilt is always the one that I'm working on. Uh-huh. And of the things that I am making. But I am pretty proud of Betsy and me. I did recently a quilt that I think turned out very nice. My son has already claimed it for his own. And it's a quilt that brings my theater background in. It's a traditional pattern, too, Paula. It's uh, baby blocks, tumbling blocks, but I've done it in a new way. And I've appliqued a juggler and some theater people, and I've put it in sort of a theater background. It's very uh, Commedia dell'arte, the Italian improvisational comedy. It's sort of Harlequin-ish. Mm-hmm. So I like that one. Of my antique quilts, I guess I have two Victorian crazy quilts, and I really do like those. I think that might be one point where my interest in quilting began, because I remember my grandmother had a McCall's Craft magazine at her house when I was little, and I was looking through the pictures, and there was a story about Victorian crazy quilts, and there were always these really pretty pictures of all this embroidery and stuff. And I thought, that is cool. I'd like to make one of those one day. Well, I started one in high school, but I never finished it. But I do have two antique ones. They might be my favorites, too. (laughs) It's okay to like them all, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Do you lean toward a certain color palette, or do you use all colors? I use all colors. But I guess lately I've really been enjoying the cool colors. I like all the different blues and all the different greens. And I have a lot of quilts in that color palette. But I love red and white quilts. Oh, I love red and white quilts. When it was my turn to design a raffle quilt for the guild, I was like, why don't we make a red and white quilt? And we did. So I love the antique red and white quilts. And I do have some. Red and white is a palette I love. And I think I sent you a picture of a red and white quilt that I made for myself. It's the one with the tree in the middle and all the sort of fairy tale characters. That quilt tells the story of my history, I guess, my culture. I'm Polish and German, and that one is based on German Schirrenschnitte, which is the German paper cutting tradition. It looks like paper cutting, and the Polish people also have a tradition of paper cutting. And of course, the Germans are very well-known for their beautiful fairy tales, and red and white are the colors of Poland. And so that quilt encompasses my German and Polish roots and my love for red and white. It's called Long Ago and Far Away. So it also uh, touches on my love for storytelling. 
Oh, and one more thing. I know that you interviewed my friend, Carolyn Burgess, and her company, Appliques Quilts and More, which is here in Lakewood. She helps me with both my artistic designs and my traditional designs. And I drew up this whole quilt long ago and far away. All the little animals and things like that, I drew up. And she scanned them into her computer and used her digital drawing program to digitize my drawings so that she could cut them out with her laser cutter. Some of these pieces that were cut for these quilts have pieces of fabric that are an eighth of an inch big, which, of course, I could never cut that, but the laser cutting machine could. And, of course, that makes them very fragile, but now that they're sewn down, they're not fragile. How do you even sew something that small onto your quilt? A tiny, tiny zigzag in invisible thread. Wow is what I do. So I guess what I'm saying is I like to make things with my hands. I love to work with my hands. All quilters do. But I do embrace technology when it can help me. I never let it take over my design. I never let it dictate anything. But if a laser machine can help me express something that I would like that I have in my mind, well, then so be it. And if my computerized sewing machine here at home can do things that will help me to further my techniques, then I will use that. I was so happy with the long ago and far away cutting that I got the idea of making a tree quilt. And I had Carolyn cut me some really, really intricate trees. I was making a traditional tree of life quilt. And I did do the traditional square blocks tree of life. But then I did these gorgeous cut out of beautiful appliques quilts with lots of little leaves and things like that. And it was something that I would never have been able to cut with my hands. Yeah. So yeah, I embrace all things available to me. (laughs) Describe your favorite tool you use in quilting. I think I just did. My (laughs) sewing machine. I don't really do anything by hand if I can help it. I like my sewing machine. So I piece by machine. I applique by machine. I do my quilting by machine. I don't have one of those in the machine where you can just kind of, like the long armors do, hit a button and then walk away. No, I do everything with free motion quilting. I move the quilt under the needle with my hands, like I'm drawing. Mm, Yeah. And that's what I did with my red and white long ago and far away. There are quilted dragons and things in there that I just kind of drew with my hands. I drew it on the fabric first. Okay. I guess my favorite tools would be my sewing machine, yeah. And what's your favorite part of the quilting process? Definitely design. Thinking of the idea that I want to do, envisioning it, planning it all out, drawing it all out, which is what I do. I'll draw out the picture or I'll draw it on graph paper if it's geometric. I'll put it up on the board and I'll make decisions. And I love making decisions and choosing the fabrics that I'm going to use. Then I start making it, and I love that process too. As soon as I can see what my vision looks like, I start to lose interest. Yeah. So definitely design. Yeah. Tell me about your worst quilting experience. I was hoping that you would ask me that question because when I read that question, I was like, I immediately know what to tell you about my worst quilting experience. It was with the red and white quilt. Hmm. 
So I was drawing all these things with a blue washout marker. I drew my dragon in and other little creatures and things like that on the quilt on a white background. I finished the dragon one night and I got a little paintbrush with some water because I wanted to see what it was going to look like without the blue lines there. And I erased it with the water and I was like, okay, this looks great. And then I went to bed. And when I woke up in the morning and checked to see that the quilt was dry and what it looked like, the red and white print fabric that I had used for the backing had bled through to the front. Oh, no. I had red and pink splotches on everything that I had used the paintbrush on the night before. Not the red and white top. Actually, the fabrics in that quilt I purchased from Carolyn Burgess at her studio and they're fine Kona cotton fabrics. That red and white didn't bleed at all. It was the print backing that I put on the back. I washed it three times, you know, because red and white does bleed. So, of course, I pre-wash all my fabric. But then there it was all in pink. This quilt had not been bound yet. I was still doing the quilting. And I still had an awful lot of quilting to do. So I couldn't wash it yet because I hadn't finished the binding. I had to keep spending the next two or three months doing all the quilting on that quilt, putting more and more work into it, not knowing if the red was eventually going to wash out. But then when I did finish it and I bound it, one of my friends, Lynn McQuiston, who is part of one of the guilds I belong to, the Quilter's Legacy of Lakewood, she told me that I should put my quilt in the bathtub with very hot water and Dawn dishwashing liquid. That kind of scared me. I thought hot water would be just the opposite of what I want to do. Yeah. But I did it. The minute I put that quilt in, the bathtub turned pink. And she said, don't do anything. And so I went to work. And I came home from work eight hours later. The bathtub was red. I let the water go out. I did it again. This time the water was pink after a day. And then I kept rinsing it. And then I laid it out on the table and blocked it. And it was still wet, of course. So when it was wet, I could still see the red and white print backing through the front, you know, because it was kind of translucent. But when it was dry... It was perfect. Wow. It was perfect. So I totally recommend Dawn dishwashing liquid. I guess it saves ducks and it saves quilts. <laughs> so that first wash when the water was turning red, was your heart kind of sinking before you went to work thinking, there's no way this is going to come out? Yep. That's what I thought. I thought now the whole background's going to be pink. But there's something about that Dawn dishwashing liquid that brings the dye out and keeps it submerged into the water without it allowing it to attach itself back to the quilt. It's got to be blue dishwashing liquid too, blue Dawn. Hmm. That's amazing. Tell me why you make quilts. I have to because I have all these ideas of things I want to make. I'm almost done with the quilt I'm working on now. And so I go to bed thinking, oh, in about a week or two, I'll probably be able to do another project. Which one should it be? 
of the eight ideas that I sketched out here, which one shall it be? And I was going to pick one of those eight ideas, but yesterday I had a new idea. (laughs) So I don't know which one I'm going to do, but I love doing it. I love to see an idea that I make up in my head come to fruition. I love to show it to my friends at guilds and get their reactions. I love to give quilts to people. And I love to enter contests. And I do that a lot. I have had my quilts at Paducah AQS show. I've had my quilts at the Grand Rapids AQS show and Hershey, Pennsylvania's Quilt Odyssey shows and well, many others. And I love going to them. I love seeing everybody else's quilts. And we wouldn't have quilt shows that everybody so enjoys going to if people didn't enter their quilts. So I entered my quilt. And I like getting ribbons. And I like getting comments from the judges. And I like standing by my quilt and being quiet and listening to the people talk about my quilt and take its picture. Oh, have fun. In 2016, you did a solo show called Fabrications. Yes, I did. I was really lucky to be allowed to have a solo show at Hiram College in the art gallery. The art gallery. Now, many people do not think that quilts are art. And to tell you the truth, even the art director of Hiram College kind of thought, well, quilts are craft, really not art. I think he really didn't know what contemporary quilt makers are doing. And so I did get to have my work, and it was lovely to see it all hanging on the walls, lit beautifully, with people coming in who were not quilters, giving their comments. And I loved doing that. I'd like to do more of that. Now, that was in 2016. So maybe in 2026, I could see if I could find a space, if not my own school somewhere else. Maybe I could show what I've done in the last 10 years, because it has been growing and changing. Yeah. And I assume that you got to stand back and hear people's comments with that. How did that make you feel? It was wonderful. I sold two quilts. (laughs) I never really tried to think about doing that. And I thought that maybe I wouldn't like it because I'd miss them or I would feel nobody can pay as much as I think they're worth. Mm -hmm. But actually, it made me feel really good. Because one quilt was a Shakespeare quilt. Again, I drew a Shakespeare head, and Carolyn cut it out for me in many different colors. And then I did 36 blocks, and each block represented a play. And there was a quote from that play on that block. And so it was sort of Andy Warhol-esque. A man who had a son who was an actor purchased the quilt for his son. And that made me feel really good. Because somebody who loves theater is going to have that on their wall and are going to understand what each of those quotes are and are going to love it. And the other quilt that I sold was purchased by the dean of my college, and he had it in his office. So everybody who had to go to the dean's office saw my quilt. Who do you usually make your quilts for? I guess for me, usually. But my daughter got married. And I made her a double wedding ring quilt, a very traditional pattern and a complicated pattern, one that requires very precise cutting and very precise sewing. And so even though it was a traditional pattern, I had Carolyn Burgess scan the templates and 
precisely cut every piece of that quilt. So I knew that if it didn't fit together properly, it was my sewing and not the cutting. So that was kind of a nice thing. But of course, even though it was a traditional pattern, I had to do it untraditionally in my choices of fabrics and the way I treated it. So it was very different. And that one, of course, was made expressly for my daughter. And then I had heard that there is a tradition in several American Indian tribes that when a person graduates, they get a star quilt. Mm -hmm. And I liked that idea a lot. And so when my son graduated from college, he got a star quilt with a story told about all of the things he liked best, like Spanish, puppetry, art, and games, things like that. And then when my daughter graduated from college, she also got a star quilt. My daughter is studying to be a vet, particularly an equine vet. She wants to work with horses. And so this has a star surrounded by galloping horses running around the star. So, yeah, I make them for my children. And I make them for contests. But then when I make them for contests, I have a notebook that tells all about each quilt, what they're made out of and how to take care of them if they can be washed and things like that. And that'll go to one of my children. In there, I've written things like, I promised this one to Audrey, or Colin claimed this one. So I guess in the end, I make them for contests. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I think this one should go to Colin or Audrey. Or I'm thinking, maybe I could sell this one one day. I don't know. I don't really know what to do with them, though. I've got an awful lot of them, and they take up a lot of space. Yeah. But I do a trunk show, and so I take them to guilds, and I unpack bags and boxes and suitcases full of quilts and share them with others. I enjoy doing that. That's a great use for them. Share a quilting tip. My quilting tip is really not one that you might expect about how to clip corners or something like that. My quilting tip is that I think you should pay attention. I think quilters should pay attention to the world around them. I think they should go to the art museum. I think they should look at Van Gogh and Gustav Klimt and Henri Matisse. And that they should look at Native American pottery. And that they should look at Native American baskets and Ukrainian Easter eggs. And all sorts of folk crafts. And be inspired by what different cultures have to offer, what colors they use, what patterns they use. I am inspired by art history. I love art history. I have a Matisse quilt that I've done. One of my nine ideas that I want to do is a Gustav Klimt quilt. Hakusai, I sent you a picture of the wave quilt, didn't I? And that is a picture of the wave, which everybody has seen, a woodcut or a poster of the wave. It's a woodcut by Hakutai, a Japanese artist, and I've used his wave, and I've combined it with traditional storm-at-sea blocks and sort of a non-traditional mariner's compass. So my tip for quilters is be inspired by what is around you and what others in other arts have done, because you are an artist too, and you should think of yourself as an artist. If you like to do traditional quilts, that's awesome. But maybe you could do a traditional quilt in the colors of Van Gogh's Starry Night or something like that. Hmm. So get out, be inspired by other arts and other crafts. 
Neat. Thanks for that. I'm going to jump off of quilting for a minute. And you may need to correct me in the way I say this. You won a Vinci Carr Award for Excellence in Teaching. Yes, I'm very proud of that. But I will tell you that these are gifts to the faculty. And truly, at one point or another, each faculty member usually gets to earn that award. It's kind of just my turn, I think. But I am proud of it. I love teaching. I keep trying to make it better. I've had to learn an awful lot new lately, learning to teach on Zoom and trying to use breakout rooms and sharing screen. And now we're teaching face-to-face at Hiram, but I still have some students who must attend on Zoom. So I have some people in the classroom, some people on Zoom. And here I am trying to teach a class where I want them all to make a Kawandi quilt with their hands. So I can be there for some people, but I have to be socially distanced. Mm-hmm. And so trying to show them what to do and then jump over to Zoom and say, hold up what you're working on. No, that corner is not quite right. Uh, Do this. But I can't touch it or point to anything. So it's challenging. And I also teach acting. And I taught acting this fall in a face-to-face format. But then some students had to be quarantined, maybe because a family member had COVID or was exposed to COVID. None of my students had COVID. At Hiram, we're doing a very, very good job containing it. We really are. We're obeying the rules, and things are going very well. But sometimes students, if they come from another state, have to be isolated for 14 days just to make sure before they can come to class. So I would try to teach acting with some people in person and teach acting on the screen. And then also, we're doing plays. We're trying to do short 1X. In COVID time, so we're trying to screen our audiences and have people 20 seats in the theater, only 20 seats, six feet apart or more, trying to do all those kinds of things. So I think that's part of why I was awarded this Stencil Car Award, because I and all of the teachers are really learning new ways of presenting our material. And, you know, even when things get back to normal, we are not ever going to lose Zoom. No. We are always going to have some students when they're sick, instead of just missing a class like they did in the old days, they're going to ask to Zoom. And of course, we would say yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even quilt guilds and things like that. I miss my friends. And so having the meetings on Zoom are helpful. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you would like to share with me today? Yes, I think so. One thing I would like to share is I think the act of quilting is really good for us. It's good for our souls. It's good for our cognitive abilities. It's good to work with our hands. It's good to express ourselves. And it's good to take time. Quilts take time. They take a lot of time. And one thing that I'm not a fan of is quick and easy quilts. I don't like all these magazines that say, make a quilt in two days or quick and easy. It has its place. Maybe that would be a good use if you had to make a baby quilt and you didn't want to spend six months on something that you want to be practical and be able to be washed a lot of times. Instead of quick and easy, I kind of like complex and slow. (laughs) 
And Paula, I guess one more thing that I would like to say, technology, we love it. We cannot live without it. None of us would ever really want to go back and not have the internet or not have the things that we have. I wouldn't either. But we need something where we can still connect as people. We still need theater where one person can tell a story to another one face-to-face in human forms. We need quilting and painting and basket making and pottery where people can express their cultures and express their ideas and share them with friends and family and with the world. We need this kind of thing in technology world even more than ever, I think. Yeah. And I did want to ask you, how did you meet Carolyn? She's a member of my guild. And I didn't know what laser cutting was, really. But it was when I made that first Shakespeare quilt, I drew it all out. And then I thought that I had to show her how to do it. And so I cut it all out of cardboard (laughs) so I could show it to her. I thought that I needed to have it all worked out for her so I could bring it to her and she would trace it or something like that. That's not the case. Really, all she wanted was a drawing. I didn't have to try cutting it out. And therefore, that first Shakespeare quilt was not nearly as intricate as it could have been if I had just drawn it. It was a little bit more simple because I cut it out of cardboard first so I could show her. So when I went over there and then she did use my drawings and things to cut it out for me, I loved it. It was precise. It made it really easy to sew. It was still my design, totally my design. So then I was kind of hooked and I realized that with complex piecing patterns even, like the double wedding ring, that even a traditional quilt is really nice to have it absolutely precisely cut. So I'm a fan. And again, all of my quilts are original designs. And if I want to draw a dragon or an owl and show it to Carolyn and have her cut it out, it's mine. But she can make me fly, I guess. (laughs) She can make it happen. But it's still mine. Yeah. So she helps me to express myself. And I love her for that. And I love her business for that. Because she does that for many, many people. I so appreciate you spending time with me and sharing your story. Thank you, Paula. It's always a pleasure to talk about something that I love so much. Mm -hmm. Thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Paula. Bye-bye now. Bye. I'm so glad you joined me for this episode of A Quilter's Life. You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you consider leaving a review as it helps others to find the show? Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website or a Quilters Life Facebook group to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening.